Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. The first two CDs that I ever bought for myself was Lady Gaga Bad Romance and um, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat soundtrack. So I know a lot about the story of Joseph, but um, for those of you who didn't grow up with Andrew Lloyd Webber and his genius creation, this is the context of who Joseph is. So he was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob was also known as Israel in the Bible. Um, And Jacob descended from a line of ancestors who were closely followed in the Old Testament when they both successfully and unsuccessfully followed God. Their their lives were sort of followed in the Old Testament. And then through this line of descent, eventually we get to Jesus being born later, generations later. Um, So the story of Joseph is followed quite closely as it's quite a messy and um, a rocky one. I mean, even just looking at Joseph's family family dynamics, we can imagine it would have been quite a tricky family to deal with. So first of all, there's 12 sons and in the Bible, there's at least one daughter. We don't even know there could be more children than that. And I'm one of four. And even that was uh, tricky at times. Um, So you can imagine it's already a battle of trying to vie for your mum and dad's attention. On top of that, Jacob explicitly goes ahead and just outrightly says that Joseph is his favourite. It doesn't really help things. Joseph isn't even the oldest sibling. As one of the oldest siblings in my family, the younger ones always got it better. I had to wait until I was 13 until my ears got pierced, and then my sister at 10 years old got her ears pierced, and I'm still better about it. (laughs) Anyways, you can imagine that the tension was sometimes quite high among the siblings. And on top of that, Joseph gets given, given this really fancy, expensive new coat from his father. So there's no doubt Jacob really does have a favourite son. And then, on top of that as well, Joseph gets a dream from God where he sees all of his brothers and his family bowing down to him. And then he just goes and announces it to the rest of the family quite arrogantly. So to be quite honest, you can imagine that the brothers don't particularly like Joseph. So the passage that we're looking into kind of picks up there. That's the background to that. And it's Genesis chapter 37, verses 12 to 36. Should be coming up on the board as well or find it in your Bibles. So it says, Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel, Israel is the other name for Jacob, said to, jo- said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on the way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? 
Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to the father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognised it and said, It is my son's robe. Some some ferocious, ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on a sackcloth, and he mourned for his son's many for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, captain of the guard. So a couple of weeks ago, we heard a preach on the beginning of this chapter, and it was about how Joseph had that prophetic dream and he saw his family bowing down to him. But the way that he shared those dreams was with quite a lot of arrogance. It wasn't very tactful. And so this is the build-up that happened before this passage. It is important to remember that this is a story about a true family with true family dynamics. So actually, when we look at the brothers' actions, we can see them as an example of maybe not how to act with our family. But we can also see that when we look at the bigger picture of Joseph's life, that God still meant these actions led to something good. So the first few verses from about verses 12 to 19, um, we see that Joseph has been sent to check on his brothers. And as soon as they see him coming, this pent up anger that they have means that they hatch a plan to kill him. And so it seems like the jealousy against Joseph and their treatment of sort of being the lesser siblings drives them to do this. They're undeniably quite bitter about how they've been treated in comparison to Joseph. And you know what? I don't really blame them. I'm sure we've all been in positions in our lives where we've felt we've been treated unfairly and we're just bitter as a result. The brothers were made to feel like their work and who they were wasn't good enough to be on the same level as Joseph. And these are all really valid emotions. It's what we do with those emotions that's important. The actual reality is that God sees us in our bitterness and in our dissatisfaction with how things pan out around us. He doesn't tell us to dismiss those emotions. It's not healthy to do that, but he does tell us that we can be satisfied in him. In Isaiah chapter 58, verse 11, it says, The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Oftentimes when we're bitter or frustrated with how things are going on around us or how things look on our life, it's because we're desiring something different. It could be a different job, a different status of relationship, a different way to be treated, um, to look different. And we feel that we're maybe lacking in success or status or beauty, whatever that insecurity is. But everything about the character of God and the love that he shows us is actually the opposite of that. He sees us as beautiful because we're made in his image. He gives us the highest birthright, regardless of our earthly family dynamics, because he's adopted us as sons and daughters. He sees us as successful because he has a future and a path for us, and nothing can take us off that path, so we're exactly where he wants us to be. We don't need to be where others are to be fully satisfied in God and who he created us to be. And I'm not saying this is easy to kind of know this and live by this. The brothers, despite conspiring to kill Joseph, didn't have it easy. They were made to feel like they weren't good enough. And they were made to feel like where they were was inferior to where Joseph was. I think the only way that we can truly experience satisfaction from God is to know him, to have a relationship with him through Jesus, and to experience the Holy Spirit. 
We don't need to covet what others have because God has us where we are for good reason. I've told this story quite a few times before, but my journey of coming to university in Manchester wasn't as how I imagined it to be. When I was in high school, I had this idea in my head that I was going to be a successful lawyer in London and I was going to go and study there with my friend and we were going to open a firm up together. As you can see, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not in London. Um, but for some reason, I'd made this idea in my head that to go to London, that was where the success would be. If I went there, I would be successful. I don't have any idea why I thought that because I've come to Manchester to realise it's much better. So, you know. <laughs> but the long and short of the story is that I didn't get the grades that I need, the predicted grades that I needed to go to the universities in London, and I was devastated. And worst of all, the friend that I'd sort of planned to go with got into the unis that I didn't get into. So it wasn't great, but I made this idea that going to London was where I could set my life on the right track, and then that crumbled. Um, but the story unfolds. I came to Manchester, realised it's the best city in the UK. I got married here, bought a house here, um, and I'm probably not going to be leaving anytime soon. But yes, good. <laughs> But at that moment in time, I was really upset. I was really dissatisfied with where I was and where my life was going. And I was bitter. The gift of hindsight is that I can look back and see that God didn't need me to go to London. The series of events that took place in my life after that um, mean that I've seen God bless me and do things in my life that I couldn't have even imagined back then. But the ending of the story isn't the bit that actually matters. It's the trust in God in the place um, of dissatisfaction and bitterness, trusting that God had placed me or was going to place me um, where he wanted me to be when things weren't going my way. And I didn't trust God in that time. That's, that's the truth of it. I didn't trust God and it was hard to trust God in that moment. So I'm not here to tell you it's easy. Um, but in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, and we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So we know that the truth is that we can trust God with where we are and where he wants us to be. And the more we dig into his word and discover who he is and what he did for us, the more we can get to know that. And the brothers didn't do this. They didn't know to do this. And they only saw Joseph's success and wanted to sabotage that. They couldn't see the value in who they were and where they were. I recently felt like um, the word disappointment has been floating around and it's maybe something that we've been feeling in some shape or form, whether it's with our jobs or where we're at in uni or our current living situations or even just our post-COVID experiences. And it's really hard to pull ourselves out of those feelings and not idolise something that we think is bigger or better for our lives. We forget that the creator of the world has given us this life exactly where we are and there's nothing powerful enough to dampen that truth or to take us away from that. There's, no, there's nothing that can, um, no any sort of disappointing job or life situation can take us away from the fact that God has put us where he wants to put us. And on an individual level, we can bring our hopes and desires to God, but along with that, we also have to lay down our control. We have to trust that God, um, that we are exactly where God wants us to be. And this is a discipline of spending time with God, opening ourselves up to the Holy Spirit so we can experience more of God. And what comes along with that is knowing more of who God is. And who God is is someone who we can trust to protect us and put us exactly where we need to be, regardless of whether we think it's successful, a successful position or a relationship or a status, whatever it is. And as a society, we have done what Joseph and his family have done. We've glamorised certain jobs, certain roles, certain relationships. Joseph and his father glamorised the fact that Joseph was a dreamer and the favourite son, and the brothers wanted to be that too. We glamorise people who are able to get pregnant over people who can't. We're still inherently glamorising being married over being single. We glamorise leadership over people who serve behind the scenes. We glamorise jobs that earn more money. 
But by idolising these things, we've taken our eyes off what God thinks is good. We've taken our eyes away from trusting God to do amazing things in the mundane and the glamorous parts in our life. Joseph brothers didn't need to kill him and take him out of the equation for their roles and positions in life to be valuable and to be used for God. We don't need to tear people down, but we actually need to lift each other up. Going back to my time at uni again, I promise I actually had a fantastic time at uni, but I'm just using all the really tough stories for the sake of the preach. Um, So I did a law degree, and towards the end of the degree, as it is with most degrees, people are starting to find jobs. um, And I'd realised at this point, I didn't want to become a lawyer. I felt like it wasn't for me, and I still stand by that choice, but everyone around me was getting the jobs, getting their training contracts, and um, I just felt like I was lost in that position. Um, Even when I knew I didn't really want to become a lawyer, I felt that everyone was getting a training contract, and that meant that they were going to be successful and they had set up their path for life. I felt like I wasn't good enough for it. I felt like everyone else around me was just far more successful. And to be honest, I felt quite bitter. I felt that people were setting their lives up for success, and I just felt like I had nothing to show for myself. And I found it really, really hard to celebrate anyone's successes. Anytime someone came and told me that they got a job or a training contract, I would, I would just be faking happiness, quite literally, because um, instead I felt bitter, I felt scared about my future, and I thought the option that I had picked um, was the unsuccessful one, and the ones that they had picked was the successful ones. And again, with hindsight, I'm standing here and I'm okay. I don't need to tell you what job I got or what I do now or what I went on to do to balance out the fact that I didn't feel success at the time because that doesn't matter actually. But what matters is that in that moment, I let that bitterness and that disappointment take control rather than looking to God and trusting that it was all part of his plan to lead me where I am now. Something that was the hardest thing for me to do in this time was to be able to be content with where I was and celebrate others. But it's something that God asks us to do. In Paul's writing in the Bible, he is constantly asking the churches to encourage one one another and build each other up. The Bible doesn't say, encourage people when they're nice to you or encourage people when life feels fair. And we have to love even when it doesn't feel fair. But if we are trusting our journey with God, this makes far much more sense. If we know that we are exactly where God wants us to be, we can celebrate others knowing it's the same for them. God uses wherever we are for his plans and for his glory. We might not be able to see that, um, but we can trust that. No matter how bitter or inferior or left behind you feel, like Joseph's brothers did, you're not. You're being used for God's work. It doesn't mean we don't address these feelings because we live in a broken world. Often things are unfair, things aren't great, but we can start to work on seeing our our value in God um, rather than from society around us. So back to the passage again. Um, the brothers Reuben and Judah sort of take this story a step, a step further. They made a plan to kill him, but Reuben sort of backs out a little bit and changes the plan to something slightly less severe by not killing him, but putting him in a pit instead. Much better. Um, then Judah takes it a step further again by deciding to sell Joseph to some Ishmaelites. So Reuben loses his opportunity to rescue him, and then they sell a story to, a story to Jacob that his son was killed by an animal and Joseph is sold as a slave. So again, the brothers are giving us an example of maybe what is not best to do. I mean, we can give Reuben a little bit of credit for the fact that he is at least stopping his brothers from killing Joseph, but actually what he's given him is only really a half mercy. He obviously felt some sort of conviction against what they were doing, but he only half acted on it. Real boldness would have meant that he stood up to his brothers. Yes, he was saved from death, but what resulted was that Joseph was sold as a slave and set to endure some pretty horrific events. 
it would be like, say you have a, um, a spare room in your house. Someone comes over to stay for a little while. You're inviting them into your home. And when it gets time to go to bed, um, they ask which room they're sleeping in. And you say, oh, no, you're sleeping down here. You point to the wooden floor, hand them a tea towel and say, you know, good night. And you're walking upstairs and you're thinking, oh, it's, it's cold out there tonight. Oh, so good that we let him stay in our house tonight. That was so hospitable of us and he's not sleeping out there. No one would look on that situation and say that that was really hospitable. It's half hospitable, which might not have been hospitable at all. Half mercies are not the full mercy that we can give people. And what I think, what I take from this is that we need to be bold in our convictions, whether that's how we talk to Jesus about people or how we stand up for justice. And let me just say this, this is something I struggle with. My personality means that I do not want to upset the status quo. I care too much about what people think about me. I can't tell you the number of times that I've stayed quiet when I shouldn't have and I should have said something. But I'm trying to and I can't let this get in the way of my obedience to God. But there's a verse that I keep coming back to and it's in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. And it's where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So to step up boldly for these brothers and sisters, for other people who need it, is obedience to God. When we see someone being racist or sexist or abusive, yes, we may not agree with that. We may not be doing those things ourselves, but did we challenge our friends and family? Did we stay quiet when we shouldn't have spoken? And again, this is, this is something where I've been there before. I've, I've been in situations where I've come away saying, oh, I should have said something. So this isn't examination, an, an examination to test our morality, but it's just to make us think about how we can be bold and turn tricky situations and bring compassion into them. But even if we do miss out on these opportunities to bring justice, then God can still make good out of, his, out of a situation. Like with Reuben, his half mercy didn't stop God from fulfilling the plan that he had for Joseph. God loves us through our failures and through Jesus, he will never stop giving us chances. But when he does give us that opportunity, that gut feeling to share something or do something um, or to act, it, it's a chance for us to be obedient and to show God's full mercy. And it is scary and it's intimidating, but the Holy Spirit can remind us that it doesn't matter what people think of us. God's love, his mercy and his words cannot be shaken by the reactions of people around us. It's an opportunity to live for God's love. And so when we get that gut feeling, like Reuben did, that we need to go against the status quo and do something, we need to grab it. And boldness is something that we can ask for. Next time we feel that gut-wrenching moment of having to be obedient to God, let's ask him for boldness to do it. So despite picking apart the brother's actions against Joseph, for Joseph in this story, he did go through all of this despite... Um, despite what the brothers tried and, and didn't do against him. So for Joseph, he got thrown into the pit and then he was sold as a slave. It probably looked pretty bleak for him and he couldn't really see beyond his current situation. But if we take a step back and look at what happened after that, um, we can see it's actually a pretty incredible story. So Joseph was taken on as a slave, but then he moved up the ranks, but then again was sent to prison for a false accusation. Whilst in prison, through God, he interpreted some dreams for a cupbearer and those dreams came true. When the cupbearer was released, he went back to serving Pharaoh. He forgot about Joseph until Pharaoh had a dream. Joseph revealed that the meaning of the dream was that there was going to be a famine. Because Pharaoh saw that God was with Joseph, he appointed Joseph to be in charge of all of Egypt. Joseph ended up saving Egypt and eventually saving his brothers who had betrayed him so many years before. The bigger picture of the story shows that right now where we are in chapter 37 does seem bleak, but in fact it's the start of a series of events that means God's plan will unfold. 
When Joseph was in that pit, he probably couldn't have imagined how on earth that was going to happen. How on earth could that dream be fulfilled after what the brothers had done to him? How on earth could his situation be turned for good after what they had put him through? And he probably thought this for many, many years after unfair and difficult things kept happening to him. And so maybe we feel like we're in some sort of pit at the moment. Maybe we feel isolated or left behind or trapped. And I hope that Joseph's story is a reminder that God has bigger plans for us. And in the hard times, he is there for us. Whatever God's plan is for us, nothing that anyone can do to us can derail it. The brothers couldn't and didn't derail God's dream for Joseph, whatever they did to him. There might be some of us here that have had horrific things done to us or been through some really difficult times. We might just actually be disappointed with how life is going, but nothing that anyone or the enemy or the world throws at us will derail God's plans for us. Sometimes God's plan for us is simply that we just live with him and live for him. We could be in a deep pit and be sold to slavery like Joseph was and this will not stop God from carrying out his plan. God does not let these things happen to us. Instead, when they do, he sees us in the pit and he is there with us whilst we're in that pit and he is the one who lifts us out. The brothers thought that they had defeated Joseph's dream but they hadn't and they couldn't. Nothing can defeat God's love and protection and his plan for us. The biggest thing that God did to show us that he means he can turn things for good is through Jesus. Jesus is the biggest restorer. In this story, Jacob clothed Joseph in his favour with a coat of many colours. And similarly, by dying at the the cross, Jesus clothed us in favour and salvation so that we can have a relationship with God. Like Joseph's brothers, the enemy hates the fact that we have a father that shows favour on us. Yet God turns this for good. The enemy doesn't want us to live in favour and satisfaction with God. The enemy doesn't want us to be in relationship with God, but Jesus made that entirely impossible. And as I said earlier, to know these things is one thing, but to experience them is another. 